Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 73, Opacity and Transparency. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by Gil Hova. So, uh, you guys know who I am, uh, but uh, for those of you watching in the future, uh, my name's Gil Hova. I am a um, board game designer. Uh, I've designed uh, and uh, I've had two games published by other uh, companies, um, and I'm going to start self-publishing myself, and I'm very into strategy games right now. I love to play them. I love to design them. I'm trying to branch out into other games, and I play other games when I can. Um, and I've designed a word game and I'm working on a party game, but this talk will focus on strategy games. Um, sure, there's aspects of this talk that will apply to other kinds of games, like uh, narrative board games, RPGs, video games, uh, but I'm going to approach this talk specifically from strategy games. Uh, so this talk is about uh, transparency and opacity in your board game, specifically your strategy game. Um, and I chose it because that's the number one thing that game designers tend to stumble on, uh, generally, new designers uh, try to keep mechanisms in their games because they're cool and spiffy. They're this really cool thing, but they're not really aware of uh, the impact of that mechanism on the feedback that the that the players get from the game state. So, uh, let's talk a little about that. About that. So, uh, let's start with chess. Uh, chess is a great example of a game that is, in theory, perfectly transparent. I mean, you know what you can do this turn. If you're good enough, you can figure out how your opponent's going to respond to that. If you're even better, you know how you're going to respond to that response. You know how your opponent's going to respond to that response, and so on down the line. There's nothing that's veiling that. Uh, so you know if you make a move, your opponent's going to make that move, and so on. If you know that your opponent can make two different moves, you can say, okay, well, here's how I'm going to respond to those different moves, and just walk your way down the different decision trees. Uh, so, so the only uncertainty here is what your opponent's going to do. But that's not coming from the game, that's coming from your opponent. So in that respect, chess is a transparent game. So if you're going to flip to the other direction, let's look at an opaque game, um, and that's poker. You know, poker's a perfect example of an opaque game. Specifically, let's look at Texas Hold'em, because there's so many ways to play poker. So you don't know the table cards, you don't know the two cards that each of your opponents have. The only information you have are your cards, how much money you and your opponents have, and how much everyone's bidding. And if you're a good player, you can also get information from body language and inflection of your opponents. But from all those incomplete pieces of information, you have to figure out the game state. So while chess presents the game state to you, in poker you've got to figure it out, and that's what makes poker an opaque game. You can consider possibilities, but the full game state's unknown to everyone until the end of the hand. And that's the challenge, using the partial information to the best advantage. So to make this clear, Transparency and opacity aren't qualities. There's nothing inherently good or bad about a transparent game or uh, an opaque game. They're both played, um, like chess and poker, are both played at really high skill levels, sometimes for lots of money and relative fame. So um, neither of them is a bad game, uh, even though one's very transparent and one's very opaque. So I'm not going to tell you to never be opaque, and I'm not going to tell you to always be transparent or vice versa. But... I should tell you that many new designers introduce needless opacity into their designs. So a lot of too much transparency can be a problem, but a lot of what I'm going to talk about is too much opacity and how you can manage your opacity to make an interesting game. And I will get to too much transparency later in the talk. So let's go on to the kinds of opacity you can see in a game. The most obvious kind of opacity is randomness, most specifically game-generated randomness. So there's all sorts of game randomizers you'll see out there. Um, these two are the most popular, uh, dice and cards. 
Um, so let's open it up to you guys. Uh, can you tell me uh, what the big difference is between dice and cards in terms of randomization? Cards have a set amount, mm -hmm. so you have a known uh, ratio and amount of randomness, whereas because the die change each roll, you don't have as much knowledge of that going in where you can go process of elimination in the randomness. That's one part of it, but there's another part of it. Uh, that's that the card deck of cards has a memory. So if I have, say, a four-card deck, the four kings, like these four kings, and I pull out the king of spades, the deck now remembers there's no longer a king of spades. There's now a 0% chance of drawing that king of spades. Is that what he said, pretty much? That's, I said that oh. with way more words, but yes. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the important word there is memory. Um, that the deck of cards is worse. Every time you roll the dice, you have exactly the same chance. And that's kind of interesting because a lot of people, that's not intuitive. A lot of people don't actually grok that. If you roll a 7 on a 2d6, you're just as likely to roll a 7 on a 2d6 the next time you roll. Um, so uh, there's something called the gambler's fallacy or the Monte Carlo fallacy. And you guys have seen or heard Michael Keller's talk on cognitive biases. Um, if you haven't, it's awesome. And it's really good. And he talks about how casinos display the last few numbers that came from a given roulette wheel. And that gives you the impression that the numbers are more or less likely to come up next time. In reality, they're not. You know, It's just as likely for a number to come up on a roulette wheel. So they're playing off this fallacy that you have uh, that... It, that this random event is going to be just as likely, it's going to be more or less likely when in reality it's just as likely. So um, that's an important thing in terms of randomness, uh, whether you have a little bit of sense of what's going to happen in the future. And um, dice and cards will do that in different ways. So, um, so let's get to a cool implication of that. Uh, let's say you have a dice game. At the start of your turn, what do you do in most dice games at the start of your turn? You, exactly, you roll the dice. Um, so that means at the end of the turn, what are you thinking? Usually not much, because you don't know what you're going to be able to do until the next turn. So if it's, a, if it's a good dice game, that's okay, because the other players' turns are so much fun to watch uh, that um, you know, you're going to be shouting and yelling during their turns, or you're, you're all going simultaneously and there's no real downtime. Uh, that dice roll at the start of your turn is opaque, so it veils the rest of your turn. So... Um, at the end of my turn, my next turn is sort of terra incognita. I have no idea what's going to happen there until I roll those dice. So that's why dice games are subject to a lot of downtime issues. It's not necessarily that they have a lot of downtime, just that you don't have any real, anything really to do during that down, downtime. Um, that's why a lot of dice, game ma dice games max out at four. You know? um, so uh, let's go to cards. So you know rummy, right? First thing you do in rummy, draw a card. Uh, so again, there's information at the start of your turn that didn't have before you drew that card. Um, you guys ever play Lost Cities? You guys ever teach Lost Cities to someone? You guys know how you always have to say, no, 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 don't draw a card at the start of your turn, draw a card at the end of your turn. You know, that always messes with me when I'm teaching Lost Cities. But, um, but you can see why drawing at the end of your turn is so good, because you draw at the end of your turn and now you got your opponent's turn to say, oh, so I can do this and this and this. And you've got something interesting to do during your turn, during your opponent's turn, I should say. So there is a difference between opacity and transparency right there. Drawing at the end of your turn, uh, so you have full information going into your next turn, is more transparent. And sometimes it's going to result in a more, interest, more interesting downtime. Not necessarily less downtime, but more interesting downtime. Whereas if you're drawing at the start of your turn, um, you've got that opacity, which might be what you're going for, but it's something you have to know that you're going for. Okay, So let's make a terrible game. Let's say we're making a push-your-luck game, and we all know what a push-your-luck game is, right? You know, where you're, um, you know, you're, uh, every turn you're deciding whether to go further and whether to go further, and if you go too far and the game decides you've gone too far, you lose everything you've had. So let's say it's a push-your-luck game, and these, uh, these cards at the bottom are uh, cards that you get. So if you decide to push, you draw a card, and the card tells you what die to roll and how you'll succeed. So you'll say, okay, I'm gonna push, and you draw that card on the left, and you say, and it says, pass if you roll a one through five on a D6. So, well, no problem. I roll a die, it's a three, so I get, to, I get a point, and I get to say, do I go again, or do I pass? And if I pass, I keep the point. If I go again, I draw a card, and that card says, pass if I roll a one or two on a D, D, 
on a d20. And now I, I've already decided to push, I've got to try to make that roll. This isn't a very good game. And so I've got an idea of why it's a terrible game. There's probably several reasons why, but in terms of transparency and opacity, you guys know why it's not a very good game? Um, because you're making a decision about whether you're going to push your luck without having any idea of what luck, what the, the chances are. Exactly, exactly. Um, so uh, you've got two opacity mechanisms here. You know, you've got the dice, which tell you whether or not you succeed, but then there are the cards which tell you what your odds are. Um, so in a better push-your-luck game like Can't Stop or Ink and Gold, you have a good understanding of what your odds are. You, you don't know what's going to happen, but you're, the game isn't managing those odds. There's no game in managing the odds are because you don't know what the odds are, so your decision is not interesting. Um, it's not necessarily that you don't have the information, it's just that the decision is not interesting. Whereas if you, are, you know you're taking a risk, that's got everybody's attention. So that's why this game is not so good, because this game did not manage its opacity well. So a good push-your-luck game has, in the words of Douglas Adams, rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. Even though there's randomness generated by the game, you know what the possibilities are. You don't know what's going to happen, but you know what might happen. So a lot of new designers have a mechanism like this. You know, They have cards leading to a die roll. Uh, sometimes that's good, but it's usually bad because you've got a veil past a veil. Opacity can be a good thing, but the game has to be in managing that opacity. You can't have the opacity managing the players because that's just not fun. So let me go to Battle Merchants, one of my games. Um, I have players collecting craft cards to make better weapons um, and then selling those weapons. And the way the game is now, if you get enough craft, you can make a really good weapon, which is called a Vorpal weapon, of course. And a Vorpal weapon will always beat a standard weapon. Um, even if they're the same level, uh, the, player, the weapon belonging to the player with the most craft in that weapon wins. But once upon a dime, there was a die roll. So you counted, the number, uh, you counted the level of your weapon, and then you rolled your die, and then you added you know, the level of your weapon. So I thought it was cool. I thought this was a really cool mechanism. You know, this was like four or five years ago. I thought, okay, well, I'm going you know, to roll the die, and maybe my Vorpal's going to lose to a standard, and won't that be awesome? And it turns out it wasn't awesome. It really just wasn't that much fun because you didn't really know what was going to happen. You didn't really care. There was that, that opacity again, and the opacity wasn't interesting. Um, once I took the die roll out, it was so much more interesting because people could just go down the board and say, oh, that weapon is going to lose to there, so I'm going to forge a new weapon, so when it loses next season, I'm going to replace it. And that's an interesting decision. Whereas, you know, well, I don't know whether my weapon's going to stay on the board. There just isn't any game in that. So that's a big source of opacity right there is game-generated randomness. So let's get to the next kind of opacity. Um, next, player-generated uncertainty, okay? Uh, some people call it chaos. I hear some other people correcting that and say, no, it's not chaos, it's uncertainty. I'm going to go with the word uncertainty here. That's another kind of opacity in your game. So let's say you and I are playing a game. Let's say Matt and I are playing, Matthew and I are playing a game, sorry. Um, I know before you go that exactly 100% what you're going to do. And you know before you go 100% what you're going to do. So you go, and then I go, and knowing that you're going to do that. And that is a boring game, right? That's just, I know exactly what's going to happen. That's, and that's a totally transparent game that's just not interesting. But almost every non-solo game isn't like that. Um, in most games, I have a pretty good idea of what you're going to do, but I don't know exactly. And that's that uncertainty that's coming from you. And this is a really important kind of opacity to mention because it's kind of a baseline. Every game that has multiple players, well, almost every game, we'll get to some exceptions in a sec, almost every game is going to have this, okay? Every non-solo game that has meaningful player choices is going to have this. So what does this mean? So, you guys ever play Alhambra? You guys have played Alhambra? Okay, Alhambra is a game where you're, you've got these buildings on a board, and you have to buy the buildings with currency. And it's a really good game. Um, it's an award-winning game. Um, and it's really good for four people or fewer. But the problem is the box doesn't say four people. It goes up to six. So, it's one of those games that, if you're playing a four-player game or fewer, 
uh, it's you take a turn and you're on pins and needles because you really need that purple building. You know, got that brown building this turn, but now if I can, you know, now I've got this money and now I can get this purple building if it's still around next turn. And you're not sure and you're really nervous and it's really exciting. So you're playing a six-player game. And when it gets back to you, the purple building's going to be gone. You wanted this brown building if you couldn't get the purple building, but that brown building's gone also. Everything's totally different by the time it gets around to you. Uh, so you're going to take a turn, you'll get some elevator music in your head, and then it's going to go all the way back around to you, and you may as well not even look at the board until it gets back around to you, and that's boring. Yeah. I, I can't pay attention for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because you're... Because you're, uh, I mean, I like two-player ascension, but yeah, four-player ascension, I mean, that those cards, the portal cards, are just going to be totally different by the time it gets around to you. Um, the opacity is very delicate in an ascension two-player game and in an Alhambra four-player game, and adding those extra players just messes with that opacity, okay? So while, you know, there's just enough there that you can say, okay, that thing's probably still going to be there, it doesn't happen in those games. That's a great example. A four-player ascension is a great example of that. Um, and there's a, probably a ton of other games that you've probably played that have the same thing. And it's interesting, Alhambra actually has an expansion, um, and a lot of them are good. Uh, one of them is the Vizier's Favor, lets you go out of turn to do stuff. And that's a really good expansion, because it actually makes the game fun with six players. So, you know, that's the only way I'll play Alhambra with six players. So the takeaway here is your game's going to have opacity. The more players you add to your game, the more opacity it's going to have. Even if you don't have dice, cards, or any randomization, all of these players are going to add opacity to your game. So if you ever wonder why a lot of strategy games max out of four, it's because of this, you know? It's not because there's necessarily a lot of downtime, it's just because the downtime's not interesting. So let's talk about games that get around player chaos. Um, can you guys come up with some examples of games that work around player chaos? Um, what about Seven Wonders? Perfect example. Perfect example. Great example. So, uh, how it gets around player chaos is... Well, everyone's doing something at the same time. Yeah. You're all doing something at the same time. Also, the game state, the only part of the game state, the game state that you're most interested in is in the cards that you get and maybe a little bit of what your, your neighbors have. Um, when you get really good, you start paying attention across the board, but that's not, you know, that's maybe 20-30% of your decision. Most of it is right in front of you. And because the game state is so narrow, it, the, the opacity is really well managed, and you can scale up. And the downside of that is that you don't have a huge amount of player interaction, and some people knock it because, well, you know, just a bunch of solo games. And while that's not strictly true, the spirit of that is, is understandable. So that's the trade-off there. But um, I think the pro of that is that you get a really interesting strategy game for seven players that you don't really see a lot of that. So that's a great example. So I wanted to bring up an example of games that don't offer player chaos. <laughs> this is a game that doesn't offer player chaos. There is no player chaos in LCR because nobody's making meaningful decisions. Yeah, so you guys know about LCR. It's a, it's a dice game. And you roll the dice, and the dice say, and you have a bunch of chips, and the dice say LCR. And if the dice say L, you pass chips to your left. If the dice say R, you pass chips to, your, to the right. And uh, if the dice say C, you pass chips across the table. Now, you might be wondering if I've missed something in that explanation. I haven't. That's the game. Um, some people call it a pseudo game because there's no meaningful choice in the game. Uh, there's a game called Bunko that's a similar I way. It's very it, big in text. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. But, you know, again, there's the dice tell you what happens. Um, there are kids' games that do that, like Shoots and Ladders and Candyland, but at least they have a justification because they're teaching kids what a game is, what a turn is. This is what winning is. This is how to win. This is how to lose, you know? Um, and those are important concepts that I'm sure you've met fully grown adults that haven't <laughs> learned those concepts, you know? Uh, but when you get to other games, you know, a lot of people, you saw the reaction here, you know, player-generated chaos is, um, player-generated uncertainty is important because um, if you don't have that, then you have stuff like this, a pseudo-game, as I've heard it called. Now, the important thing is, there is opacity in LCR. It's just coming from the game. Yeah. If you play a solo game, there's opacity there, but it's not coming from another player, it's coming from a game. Effectively, in those two examples... Um, instead of having uh, the, the substitute for the player-generated uncertainty 
is uh, the randomness from the game. So sometimes one stands in from the other. In the case of a solo game, it's really cool. In the case of this, well, let's go on to the next slide. <laughs> uh, so the last kind of opacity I want to go over is opacity from game complexity. This is an interesting one because it gets us back up to chess. It, before some of you guys came in, I was talking about chess, and I gave the example of chess as a transparent game. But there's an asterisk there because it's not totally transparent for everyone. Like, you know, for Gary Kasparov, it's a transparent game because he can tell like 10, 20 moves down the road what's going to happen. For me, I am an awful chess player. Yes. You know, chess is an opaque game for me. I can tell maybe what's going to happen, maybe one or maybe two turns ahead if I'm lucky, you know? And if it's totally obvious, but you know, yeah, um, a good player is going to figure out what her opponent's likely to do, but I'm not going to be able to do that. To me, chess is an opaque game. So this is actually a really important point. Opacity can be relative. So just because a game is transparent for one player doesn't necessarily mean it's transparent for another, and that usually factors into experience. So you guys played Race for the Galaxy? Yes. Have you guys ever tried to teach Race for the Galaxy? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So um, I, I know people who won't, don't want to learn Race for the Galaxy. It's a wonderful game, but it's just so overwhelming. And it's not just the iconography, it's just this idea of, well, if I play with experienced players, you know, they're going da-da-da-da-da, and I'm going, wait, if I pick Consume now, I can't actually get any points because I don't have any planets that, you know, and it's this realization like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And that's like, that can be not fun, you know, um, especially if you're playing with people for whom it's second nature and, you know, they're going da-da-da-da-da, while you're trying to figure out how to what's going to happen on the next turn. So for you, the game is opaque. For everyone else, it's transparent. So your challenge as a game designer is to make a game that's enjoyable to play at any level. So there's a designer named Mark Rosewater. Uh, he designs for Magic the Gathering. Talk about a complex game. Uh, he coined a great term. He coined a term lenticular design. Uh, do you know those cards that had like the serrations in them? And when you turn them, you saw a different image as you turn them? Those are lenticular cards. And so he used that term to describe games that as you played them, it was like you were turning the card and you are seeing new things. Every time that you play the game, you see something new. It's a great term because it perfectly describes a game. I've heard Imperial Settlers. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but I've heard Imperial Settlers. The first time you play, you're like, oh, so I need to do this. And the second time you play, oh, so I need to do this as well. And every time you play, you find something new. Um, if Race for the Galaxy has a fault... It's that the lenticular design, the first time you play it, you're like, what? Huh? What? And it kind of fails you the first time you play. Now, I think Race for the Galaxy is still a great game, but it's got the advantage. It's published by a well-known company, by a veteran designer, and it's got awesome production values. And at this point, it's got a pretty large fan base. So it can get away with stuff that we can't necessarily. So we, the bar is higher for us. We've got to design a game that's really interesting the first time it plays, even though it might have all that extra opacity uh, from the game system. So have you ever, ha ever had a playtest where the players are playing wrong? Like, they're just totally screwing up the game. And you're like, no, you're not playing the right way. And they're complaining, no, your game is broken. And you're like, no, you're just not playing the right way. If only you would see the way I want you to play, you would see the genius in my game and see how brilliant I am. <laughs> you know, and you've been through playtests also, I'm sure, where you're trying to get into the designer's head this is a problem, you know? If only, and he's saying, if only you just study the game, you're like, no, no, this is a problem. So let's say you have a complex game and players aren't seeing what they should do, you know? First thing off, this is a problem, you know? You might say, well, they have, just have to play right. No, no, in the, if they play the first time and they don't play right, and it turns out that uh, they don't like it, they're just not going to play the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're just done, you know? So what do you do? You've got two options. The first option is to limit their choices. You cordon off certain areas of the game and tell them, you just can't do this right now. It dramatically reduces the game's complexity, dramatically reduces a lot of that opacity from the complexity, and they can more easily tell what's going to go on. Uh, and so, like Race for the Galaxy, for example, if you learn it out of the rule book, they actually tell you, start player one with these cards, player two with these cards, and that really manages that opacity. So you can really tell um, much more, you have a much smaller field of play. 
uh, there are some Mayfair games where not only did they do that, they walked you through the first few turns and just said, you do this, then you do this, then you do this. Uh, there's some other examples. Can you guys think of some examples of like cordoning off certain areas? Um, Race for the Galaxy actually does that. Yeah, uh, I just if, mentioned. If, yeah. some, if someone actually follows it, mm-hmm. and I've never seen someone do that, yep, but I yep. try to teach. Yeah, I actually I was just mentioning that player one starts okay, with I'm these cards. No, that's cool. That's cool. Don't worry. I did that just it's now gone. with Ben. So it's it's eleven it's eleven thirty on a Sunday. It's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so, up until Oh, man, yeah. So um, here, another example, Space Alert. Have you guys played Space Alert? Uh, it's a cooperative game. It's really super complex. There's a lot of interesting things you can do, but the tutorial actually starts out with like half the game. And you learn half the game, then you play your next game, and then you get like 60% of the game, then you get 75% of the game, and slowly you learn a little bit more. Maybe so kind of does yes. that, but it throws me a little deeper than, mm-hmm. say, you know... Yep. They're both, they're both the same designer, Vladish Vadal, yeah, who's really yeah. good at uh, to t- making a tutorial to cordon off that complexity, and that's exactly what uh, one of the things you want to do. Um, the other thing you want to do if your game is too complex and your players aren't sure what to do, um, I've got uh, this old Illuminati card, the Orbital Mind Control Lasers, and that's what I always think of when I think of player incentives. You want to incentivize your players to go towards a certain behavior. So you still have a lot of options, but now it's clear to players, I've got to, I got to choose this one. So to them, it still feels like a choice, but, and they still feel like they're doing the right thing, but early on when they're just learning the game, uh, they're learning uh, this is the right thing to do. Uh, so if you ever have a person like looking at your game, calculating furiously for two minutes, then just leaning back saying, whatever, I'll just do this, you may want to do some player incentivization. So there's another really awesome um, panel that I heard from Luke Crane and Jared Sorensen um, called Game Design is Mind Control, and it's all about player incentives. And it's a great topic. It's a great way to look at it. It's all about um, player incentives. And you can Google Game Design is Mind Control, and it's available as, a, as a, online via a podcast. Um, like a rule set is huge, and there's so many ways that a player can go in a rule set. So the way they did it is this. Uh, they gave one example. Uh, um, Luke said to Jared I'll race you to the chair and back and Jared said okay and they both got up and then Luke just blocked Jared Luke just stood in front of Jared and didn't let him pass you know so he wasn't doing anything illegal but the game didn't incentivize him to race to the chair and back you know he was still winning the race so that's an example of player incentives you know you have to incentivize your players to actually race to the chair and back it's not enough to just not let the other player get to the chair and back. Um, so here we can discuss how to use player incentives to overcome excessive opacity. So let's make another terrible game. So this is a game where you're a smuggler, okay? And you have a choice of where you can smuggle your goods. So if you smuggle goods in an armpit, you have to roll a d6 and you succeed on a roll of one to three. If you hide the goods in your shoe, you succeed by rolling a one through four and a d8. If you hide the goods in your mouth, you succeed by rolling a 1 through 5 on a d10. And we can save other body parts for the expansions that will inevitably come. Um, why is this a terrible game? Exactly. Exactly. So we've got all of these mechanisms, and they don't mean a thing. There is no meaningful choice here. Whether I choose the armpit, the shoe, or the mouth, the game is not incentivizing me to distinguish between, between them. As far as the game is concerned, they are identical. You might think thematically they're different. Oh, the armpit is smelly and the shoe is smelly and the mouth is just icky, but the game doesn't care about that. As far as the game's concerned, they're all 50% chances. Now, let's say we change the odds. Let's say everything becomes a D10, but the armpit succeeds on a 5 or less, the shoe succeeds on a 7 or less, the mouth succeeds on a 9 or less. So what's going to happen there? Exactly. So you've incentivized the players to choose the mouth. Now, that's not necessarily a better game, but you're starting to go down the, ra- the route of making interesting decisions. And now if you have like a really severe penalty for getting caught in the mouth and not a big penalty for getting caught in the armpit, well, it's still not a very good game, but you see you're making another step towards making a good game. And that's all from player incentives. You know, you're, you're, you're starting to manage what you want players to do in this game, and that's the makings of an interesting decision. So I'm going to go back to my game, you know, because I'm just a self-promotional horror here. (laughs) So in this game, when you sell a weapon to a race, the race gives you a little bonus tile, which um, means the next time you sell to a race, you'll get a little more money. And that's a great system because 
you, it's a really transparent system. You know what's going to happen next. But originally, I had a system where the more battles a race loses, the more money they give you. And it was really thematic. I loved it because it was so th thematic. Every time they lost, they gave you a little more money. And I was like, that's so cool, isn't it? Players hated it. Players thought it stunk because it was needlessly opaque, you know? So you finished a round, there were all these battles, and then the payouts changed, you know? So, you know, it was the end of a, so like, end of the season, we calculated all these battles, it was just a puff of smoke, and then suddenly the numbers were different. And players had no idea, going into a at the end of the season, going into battles, how what they did would affect battles for the next season. It just wasn't that interesting. And they'd lean forward, they'd think about it for a bit, and then they'd, like, detach. And they'd shrug and they'd say whatever. And that detachment is what I didn't want, you know? So I changed it to be a more direct. I removed that complexity by, that opacity by complexity. Because that opacity by complexity just wasn't needed. Now, there are times when the opacity by complexity might be interesting. You know, you got games like Brass, you got games like Terra Mystica. They're really complex, and there's a little opacity at first, but... It's, it turns out those decisions are really interesting. In this game, it was not an interesting decision until I took it out, and then suddenly it became an interesting decision. It also meant I could do something cool, because now you had these tiles that you won every time you sold to a race. Now, every, now when I started the game, everybody got a tile. And now you got an incentive. I want to sell to this race, you know? So while before all of the spaces were the same, now I've got a couple of spaces that are a little more interesting to you. And that led to more interesting decisions down the road. So those player incentives can often lead to more interesting decisions. One last thing I want to um, point out about player incentives. Um, and that's an incentive needs to be clear to fully work as an incentive. Okay. I'm going to use an amazing game as a negative test case here. A negative case here. So if you want to burn me at the stake, please wait until the seminar is over. I love Acquire. You know, without it, most of the games I enjoy would not exist. It set the mold for the middleweight economic strategy game, and it came out in 1962, so it was really ahead of its time. But there's one thing that bugs me. The game, you guys are familiar with the game, you know, you're putting tiles down to increase the size of these hotels, you buy shares in the hotels, and then you grow them to make the shares more valuable. But what you wanna do, what the game incentivizes you to do, is to have bigger hotels merge and swallow your hotels that you have shares in. And that way, you leverage your shares to get more shares of the bigger hotels. Buying the shares of the bigger hotels is just prohibitively expensive. And the game incentivizes you to get bought out. That's not obvious to a first-time player, especially reading the rules. They're like, oh, I just want shares of the biggest hotel. So they blow all their money on the biggest chain, and then they're just sitting there. Yeah, exactly. Broke. They have no agency, you know. So a new player, you have to specifically guide them and say, no, you don't want to do that, you know. And that's an example of um, this opacity by complexity that, and a player incentive that is just not as good as it could be. Now, I'll give Acquire a break because it was 1962, you know. It was beyond state-of-the-art back then, you know. So, um, But still, now in 2014... Uh, we can do better. We're expected to do better. We're expected for a first-time player to know from the game system what they're supposed to be able to do. Let's get back to this deck of cards. Remember how opacity is different for different players? Relative opacity? So in a card game, there are players who can count cards, you know, especially in a game like Hearts or even Bridge. You know, they're keeping track of exactly what cards are being played. They're going into a discard pile and they're just remembering. So, um... Some players can remember this, others player, players can't. And you see this in a bunch of other games, and it falls into a phenomenon that gamers call HTI. Hidden Trackable Information. HTI sounds like a disease, and to some gamers it is a disease. Um, it's any information in the game state that's technically hidden from view, but players could technically track. Now, we're all, are you all familiar with Puerto Rico? Yeah. So Puerto Rico, you get you ship a good, you get a victory point, and you turn that victory point ship upside down. So in theory, players could like write down, oh, I know Linda just shipped three points, so that gives her 21 points from shipping, and she's got 13 points for a building, so I can calculate exactly how many points she has right now. But as we all know, people don't play Puerto Rico that way. It's just not... 
Some people do. Do we try to play with those people? Yeah. Exactly, you know? So most people do not play Puerto Rico that way. Um, in theory, they could track your exact score, but it's te- even though it's technically hidden. And those people are going to be the people who think this is a disease, you know? An element of the game that's actually public, but the designer just chose to make opaque. And so, do you guys know why the VP in Puerto Rico are face down? It's so it's to prevent downtime. You know, in theory, um, the Andreas Seifarth did not want players to do all those mental gymnastics. You know, they didn't want he didn't want players to have to calculate because if they're all face up, then every turn you'd be like, oh, this player is this many points, this player is that many points. By making everything face down. You have to track it now, and that just reduces the number of players who are going to do that. Most players are going to be like, okay, that's just behind the screen. I'm not going to pay attention to it. I think it's the right call. I think it was absolutely the right decision to make, to make the scoring um, opaque, even though it's technically transparent. But HTI is not always the right decision. So I played a game earlier this year. I'm not going to say publicly what game it was, because I didn't really... I liked it except this part, and this part torpedoed it for me. It was a stock game where, you know, there were these companies and you had to have stocks. You got a bonus for having the most stock in each company. So at various points of the game, I could get, say, two stocks in company A, company A, two stocks in company B, one stock in company C. Like I could get five stocks and decide how to allocate them. So I'd want to get more stocks in company A, say, than anyone else. But the problem is company stock was HTI. So when everybody else got stock, I could track how much they got, but... They kept it face down, so I didn't exactly know how many shares they had in each company. This was a big decision to make, you know, because it was a granular decision. I've got to decide company by company, share by share, how many how many shares to take. And that just wasn't an interesting decision because I didn't know how many to take. I had to guess, and that guessing wasn't fun. Now, if this was a 20-minute game, it would have been great, you know. It would have been like, ah, flying by the sea in my pants. But this was a two-hour strategy game, and it just wasn't interesting. This was not a good way to implement HTI. So um, let's get back to Acquire. Acquire has an interesting case here. Um, when you play Acquire, do you play with shares open or closed? It, the rulebook actually, the first rulebook didn't say, and most of the rulebooks and most of the versions don't say. Um, most people play open, and uh, Sid Saxon actually preferred open but it's never actually specified in the rules. Um, and so if you're making, let's say you're making a choir for some reason. Let's say you're making a choir and you come to this decision. What do you do? Do you make shares open or do you make shares closed? This is actually a really interesting decision that game designers go through all the time because if you make it open, you're going to turn off players who want to fly by the seat of the pants. They want a lighter, uh, more casual game. If you make it closed, you're going to turn off that other group of gamers. You're going to turn off that, those gamers now that want a drier, more calculating game. This isn't necessarily a, this game is better, this game is worse. This is a, who do you want to appeal to? And this is a, a really interesting choice that designers face all the time. If you go left, you alienate group A. If you go right, you alienate group B. Which direction do you go? And this is a tough, um, a tough thing to answer. Um, so... This is probably worth a digression here because it's such an interesting question. Um, I'm a big believer in core engagement. I don't know if you guys have heard that term yet, um, but my game design mentor, Kevin Nunn, really believes in core engagement and he preaches it a lot. I've totally swallowed the Kool-Aid. Um, it's worth a seminar all on its own, but I'll give a summary here. Um, uh, core engagement is the action of ensuring that your game actually appeals to the people who are most likely to enjoy it. So before, people had been talking about deciding your target audience. Other people said finding the game's fun. Core engagement is great because it, it swallows those two concepts together, encompasses them. You're deciding on your target audience, you're finding the fun of the game, and you're making sure those match. Okay? Again, this could be a whole seminar on its own, and I'm probably going to give one next year. But let's say you have a two-hour strategy game with a memory element. Guess what? You've messed up your core engagement. People who enjoy two-hour strategy games do not want to play a memory game, especially a two-hour memory game. Yeah. I recently so anybody who want to play a two-hour memory game. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I recently played a tactical combat game that had a party game mechanism in it. What? Yes, it has a literally a party game mechanism. I'll give you more information after the seminar. We called it after ninety minutes 
you know, because the, 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 the tactical game part was really fun. Well, it was good, but the party game was just a grind, you know? You, again, it missed its core engagement. It's, it's got a party game mechanism. It's got to be 45 minutes or less. Even better, if you've got a tactical game, you know, don't get your, you know, dessert topping in your floor wax, you know? <laughs> Is your game a resource-collecting euro with a war game element, a negotiation element, and a dexterity element? You've got four different games there. You've got four core engagements there. So core engagement is about finding who's gonna, who's gonna enjoy the game, uh, whether that enjoyment is actually there in the game, and whether your game is actually serving that. You know, so there's three questions you're actually asking. Um, it's central to your design process. The, it's the biggest question you have to answer in your first few playtests, because your first few playtests, you might go back and forth. You might start with like a 45 minute tactical game and then say, wait, no, this would be better as a 90 minute strategy game. Um, and then maybe say, oh, let's put a 15-minute party game element in it. No, let's make a separate 15-minute party game. Those are all core engagement decisions, and those, that's what you're deciding in your first 15 minutes. Um, so if I'm making like a 20-minute apples-like party game, and somebody says, this game would be great with a bluffing element, I might be like, it's a different game. You know, it's a different core engagement. I love the idea. I'm going to make it its own game. So we'll go back to Acquire and this really fascinating design decision. Do you go with closed shares or open shares? Well, what's your core engagement? Is your core engagement um, a lighter, more breezy game? Closed shares. Is your core engagement a uh, heavier, uh, more calculating game? Open shares. Uh, that's really uh, how you have to make this sort of decision. Um, I saw one player actually make a really interesting uh, suggestion. He said, play closed. But once in the game, each player can point to one other player and that player's shares and say, for the rest of the game, you play with those shares open. And that's kind of a, that is, that's a really interesting mix of transparent. You, you've got this opaque game state, and you have one bullet to make this part of the game transparent. And it's really kind of interesting. I'm still going to play with it open, but it's interesting, you know? So you have HTI in your game, and your players ha hate it. How do you handle it? There's a few ways to handle HTI. Um, so one way is to make scoring transparent. Making scoring transparent does a few neat tricks. One is to base turn order on scoring. You know, um, Power Grid kind of does that, even though it's technically not scoring. There's still like a, an idea of how well you're doing in the game, and that's kind of the classic example of rubber banding by, uh, by, tur by variable turn order. Um, another is direct interaction, and I'm saying this through gritted teeth, because I hate Bash the Leader, and I hate, don't attack me, attack her, she's in the lead. But some players like that, if you've got like a 45-minute tactical conflict game, that might be a perfect fit. That might be a great way to handle this sort of thing. So you play open, but you allow players to, uh, to attack each other and deal with the rubber banding that way. Um, but there's disadvantage if, if that uh, game that you want to put direct interaction, if it's a resource collection euro, you may have just screwed up your core engagement. Because people who play resource collection euros do not want all their resources taken from them by another player. And it goes back to core engagement again. Um, but another way is by opening up your scoring and making scoring transparent. Uh, just promise me if you do this, don't do that, please. Don't end your scoring track at 120 if your scores go to like 150. Oh, God, please. That's really bad. And don't serpentine your score tracks either. You know, going up should be going in one direction. It shouldn't be move. You know, I'm going to give you three points and actually move a player three points backwards. And next thing you know, you know, that player is never talking to you again. Yeah. Have you guys played Francis Drake? It's a relatively new game. Nope. Uh, it's got something kind of cool in it. It's got transparent scoring, but there's parts of the game that you, you score these gems and you put them in a chest. And they only score at the end of the game. And I was like, why do you do that? Because you know how much you're scoring. But the answer is, even though it's HTI... That's points that you're locking in, and even if other players can calculate it, the important thing is those scores don't count against you for a turn order, because that game does variable turn order based on scoring. It's kind of cool. These are kind of like safe points. You know, five points from gems are better than five points you get elsewhere, because those five points from gem won't hurt you in turn order. So it's another really interesting way to manage transparency and opacity. Another way to, uh, to handle HTI is do what uh, this game did, uh, Louis XIV. Um, where all your scoring tiles are face down and they all have random values. So you know you're getting a certain number of scoring tiles, but you don't know exactly how many scoring tiles you're, how many score, how many points you're getting, how much you're scoring per play. 
you know the approximate value of what it's worth, but not exactly how much. You know, so that helps uh, alleviate it. Um, it also drives some players insane. It does. It does. I think Outpost does this also, right? When you collect money and Outpost, Outpost, you collect it from cards, right? Uh, and it's a random value. I know Scepter von Zavendor does that, the Scepter of Zavendor, but I think Outpost does it also. When you collect money, you're not sure how much money you're going to collect. So the amount of money that everybody has is not HTI. You know this player has this has this range, but you don't know exactly how much they have. And that's kind of neat. So let's make one more terrible game. Um, I've been talking about opacity all this time. Let's go to transparency. Let's make a race game. I'm playing a race game with Ben, okay? It's my turn. We have to get to five points. It's my turn. I get a point. Now it's your turn. You get a point. Now it's my turn. I get a point. It's your turn. You get a point. This is a terrible game, right? And why is it a terrible game? Because I'm not three. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to win. We can tell I'm going to win. It is clear and obviously transparent that I'm going to win. It's totally awful. So most games don't have an issue, the issue to this extent, but you've played games where you're going to say, oh, you know, we can stop playing now. In two rounds, that player's going to win. Yeah. 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 So um, it's totally anticlimactic, you know. Even though it's like, well, okay, that player won. I guess it was a good game. It's, you don't want your game to end that way, you know. You want your game to end with a bang. You don't want your game to just end with just this, this floundering, like, oh, well, just call it now. Um, so I love this guy. Yeah, I think he, Freedom and Freeze, he's one of my game design idols. But we differ in one aspect. He loves race games. He loves games where the game ends when you get to a certain point, okay? He hates optimization games. I love optimization games. I love the constraints and consistencies that a fixed round game gives me. As a designer, I love how many design problems it solves. Um, I, I know why he hates optimization games, and it's a fair, uh, fair call. You play a set number of rounds, then there's this puff of smoke, and somebody wins. And, you know, it's, it's annoying. It can be annoying, right? If it's not managed properly, it's, it's, uh, too, there's some math and somebody wins. But I, here's the way I see it. I think it can work, but it's got to be done this way. You guys ready for this? Got to be done this way. Think of figure skating. <laughs> Stay with me here. Um, the skater does her routine, and if she does her good job, uh, crazy cheering, she gets flowers, and she goes to an area called the kiss and cry. So she kisses her coach, she, uh, she, you know, she sort of hugs the dolls and the flowers, and she sort of rocks back and forth and waits for her score. That's what you want, you know? That's what you want, not just from endgame scoring, but from opacity in general. You want this. You know, you want, you want just enough opacity to have the players at the edge of the scene seat knowing the uh, endgame outcome, okay? So it's kind of like a spectrum that you're shooting for. And here's the spectrum, you know? All the way on the left, it's too transparent. You're calling it two rounds from the end because you know that player's going to win. Too far on the other side, and it's too opaque, you know? It's like, that's the title of the seminar. Wait, that player won? You know, it's just, there's, it just didn't connect to the actions of the game. But right in between is what you want. You know, you want just enough opacity that you know you've got a shot, and then you get all this shouting and, oh my god, I can't believe that happened, you know? That's the opacity that you're shooting for. You want just enough to make it interesting. Now, how much is just enough? It depends on your game, you know? Um, if you're designing a strategy game or if you're designing a push-your-luck game, totally different levels of opacity there, but this is what you've got to be thinking about in that case. Um, so... Um, I can, I'm going to talk a little more about the game I'm working on and have a really interesting decision um, about opacity and um, hidden trackable information. Um, so the game I'm working on right now, uh, Bad Medicine, um, it's a party game where you're pitching pharmaceutical drugs to each other and then you vote on your favorite drug. It's, it's, really, it's, it's been fun so far and people have All really enjoyed them. it. Sorry? All of them. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, um, so the only thing is everybody's pitching and then everybody's voting and so you know who you're voting for when you pitch so um, so there is a chance that competitive player might say well I'm not going to vote for that player because I voted for that player twice already I know that player has a bunch of points so what do you, you know so what do you do there is that is is that a problem if so how do I fix it so I spent some time trying to figure out what to do here so the first thing I did is I made scores HTI it's a good start 
You know, so at least now players have an idea. This is a party game. I don't at 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I don't count on players getting bent out of shape because they don't know exactly what to do. If they are, they're playing the wrong game. You know, this, it's not a game where the core engagement is to turn your brain to figure out how to score the most points by pressing lever button A and pulling lever B. It's a game where the core engagement is coming up with really funny drugs and making everybody laugh. So I considered a couple of other methods. Um, one I, I thought for about 2.5 seconds and immediately dismissed was, anybody play Killer Bunnies? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know the Killer Bunnies um, lottery system, right? Uh, there's 12 large carrot cards. They're numbered 1 through 12. And there's two tw 12 small carrot cards. They're also numbered 1 through 12. You collect the large carrot cards, and the more you have them, the better, because at the end of the game, you flip one small carrot card, Whoever has that number wins the game. So you might collect one carrot card. Your opponents may have collected three or four. If your number came up, you won. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that on paper it sounds, well, that might be kind of cool. And then you play it and it's just not really that fun. You just don't want to have to come down to a random draw. So you know, a whole other thing. Yeah, just, yeah, and then suddenly and it's then, it's like, you know, oh, look, surprise! Take a name out of the hat. Exactly, exactly. And even though one player's better odds, that's just not enough. Yeah, I've, I've got four minutes. I'm almost done here. Um, so another thing I could have done is, um, there's a game called But Wait, There's More, and what it does is it hides the players' votes. So... Everybody votes for everybody else, but you're going to give most of the players zero points, and you're going to give one player two points and one player one point. Everybody else gets zero points. So everybody's getting a card face down, but you don't know how many points everybody has until the end of the game. So this fixes the problem, right? Because now you don't know who to throw the votes to because you don't know what their scores are. But I didn't like it because the whole fun of the game is, ha, I won the round, you know? And you sort of lose it in that game. So, um... And so what I wound up doing in the end was um, I went with, uh, you know, just play open because that's the fun of the game is just playing open. And I've, I'm going to have a variant most likely at that, look, if you really care about it, whoever voted for the player with the most points get, gets one extra point. A little bit of incentive to vote for the player who you think has the best pitch. But honestly, it gets back to core engagement again. Where, you know, if you want to play a game where you're grinding your gears to get the most points, then, you know, you're, you want to play a different game. Cool. Cool. Thank you, guys. Uh, we have three minutes. Any other questions? Anything?